Welcome back to Sports Psych MD's podcast. Welcome back. We hey, have a it special a guest long today. Time. Gentlemen. <laughs> long time. We recruited a, long time. an extra talent for today's podcast. Yes, Should we introduce him? Please, by all means, Dr. Mike Ma. How's it going, everybody? Nice to be here. Yes, indeed. First live show since COVID, I think. Is that right? Hey. Yeah, it is. What a privilege. It is. So, Mike, yes, I, we have to give a little bit more than just his name because there's a lot, right? There's a lot with this guy. So, first off, how do we know him? Well, he is a fellow brother in the field of psychiatry. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. He is a psychiatrist. He actually went to the same program as Tori and I. Uh, so, we share UCLA in common. And uh, he's also a, a, a fellow sports psychiatrist right so um we're really happy to have him on. budding sports like budding well he's a yeah, recruiting he's up, and, up and coming up and coming but he just jumped out here graduated last year um has his private practice you want to give a quick plug what's up everybody dr mike magrefta here yes indeed <laughs> i met these two handsome gentlemen at ucla for residency and we've kept in touch since i just opened up a private practice about a year ago over in Century City. No socials to plug, but www.mymd.com. There it is. Um, Check it nice out. to be here. Check it out. All right, well, we have an exciting podcast for you guys yes, today. We so we're doing a topic we haven't really talked about, although we did do a boxing combat sports episode with Cyrus Ramon, who, Cyrus Pattinson Ramon, who is now a professional boxer. Go check that one out. But today's all about mixed martial arts, and we're going to focus in on the, the UFC. Don't worry if you don't know a whole lot about MMA. We're going to give a brief history. Oh, yeah. Talk Break it down. a lot about how UFC started, the evolution of UFC, um, the mental fitness principles highlighted by UFC fighters. We're all avid fans of the UFC. None of us have competed, obviously, but I know. Uh, well, it's not so obvious. Dr. Mike Ma over here, he's, he's done some boxing I mean, I'm kind of, <laughs> I, could, I could have competed myself. Yeah. No, I'm just, we're just, no, but we're, we're actually going to uh, talk about why we didn't compete. Uh, more than why we did, because you know it's not for everybody. But it's it's for it, you know. Listen, if you can be great in a sport like UFC, then you're going to get that 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 kind of respect that we give or used to give. You know, the great boxers. Oh right? yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It, we felt like we had to do a podcast specifically about mixed martial arts because it's such a unique sport. And uh, we might as well just go ahead and jump into uh, into the episode. So cue the music. Cue the music. Whenever you, whenever you see a dude with a whiteboard out in the office, you know yeah, we're ready to go. In. Did you guys watch that UFC 278? Absolutely. Oh, I no, know you did. The, you guys, we, so we had a we had a watch party over at my place to watch UFC 278. It was yes, a pound indeed. for pound champion at the time, Kamar Usman versus. And Leonard by the Edwards. way, this was also a housewarming party for yours truly, nice. Doctor, and that's where we're recording. Trojio. Today. Congratulations, yes, Doctor Trojio. Appreciate it. Well. Place is beautiful. Appreciate you guys coming over, and we. I think we watched a pretty decent card. Definitely a, a great main event. Um, the last two fights were amazing, um, yeah. but we wanted to have that. We wanted to get prepped for this, but that card was amazing we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about we'll get to the main event yeah, especially we'll, yeah we'll talk a lot about uh, leon edwards and that amazing victory but uh let's give a little uh background well, actually before we do that 
we wanted to get Dr. Mike Ma on here. I'm going to start calling you Mike. Dr. Mike. Mike. Yeah, Dr. Mike. Um, huge UFC fan. He's he's our he's our resident UFC fan coming from our, our residency. Our, our resident sports psychiatrist. Specializing. Specializing. In combat sports. In combat. There you go. I'll take that title. You if, you're, if you're handing it out, I'll take it. So <laughs> that's right. Tell us a little bit about what is it about MMA, mixed martial arts you know, that you like? Let's see. I got into it. In college, over at the dorms at UC Irvine, one of the only channels on TV was Spike. Oh, yeah. Up until yeah. then, I was a hardcore <laughs> Laker fan, NBA fan, and uh, I was training a little bit back then, Krav Maga, Jiu-Jitsu, stuff like that. Nice. Um, and then just started watching the fights in the dorms, fell in love. And there's a lot of things about it that really set it apart. You know, if I had to just pick one up front, I remember, you know, like regular season NBA games. I can't stand watching athletes not trying, not giving a shit about the result, so on and so forth. In MMA, if you're not giving it 100%, then you're going to pay a big price. So, kidding me? You know, every game is like a finals game, you know? That's right. Yeah. And you only have three fights a year on average. So, and some guys only fight once a year. It's like a game seven intensity in every fight. Mm -hmm. So, that is one of the many aspects that kind of drove me to becoming a hardcore MMA fan. That's what I love about it too, because yeah. it, it, I feel like it's the last, it's equivalent to like the last second of a close basketball game, like a tie game with, I don't know, minute left. I feel like that's what the UFC is or MMA is at its best because literally you never know when it's going to end. So yeah. that's, it's just an exciting aspect. And we're going to get in today about all, all the intricacies of the sport that make it. I think one of the most entertaining, and it's been proven out to be one of the biggest growing sports. It right is now uh, absolutely. The world. No, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> I loved boxing. You know, I was a huge boxing fan growing up, and when you are a huge boxing fan, I, I think you know people that grew up with boxing can agree. It, it was hard to make the transition. It's hard to just like you know, embrace something new. It took a little bit of time, but you know, um, honestly, it, it, it's one of these things. It's really hard to ignore. You know, especially once the, the fighters got more talented and, you know, I got to a point where it was just, you know, like the current state of MMA, you know, with UFC, you know, it's uh, the way it's promoted, you know, it, the, the huge stadiums, you know, with, with thousands and thousands of people, you know, all the hype. It's a huge thing now. And what, what, let me ask you this. What was one of your reservations initially being a I boxing would, loyalist? You know... The, my reservations actually became the things that um, now I appreciate the most. It was, you know, the fact that there was mixed, you know, types of, of, of fighting in there. You know, I just didn't, it didn't make sense to me, you know, because boxing is just, you know, the same two types of fighters going at it. And that's what my brain was used to. So it almost seemed a little unfair, I guess, and weird that you had a guy that was maybe, you know, training jujitsu, as you were talking about, jujitsu, like, is totally different than what a boxer would be doing, right? Or a wrestler. I mean, they're just very, very different, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, like, they're in the ring together. It didn't make sense. Yeah. But then I realized over time, man, this is actually more interesting because when you have to learn a defensive technique, you know, it's, you have to kind of be very creative, you know, with, with how you defend if, you know, you're not used to somebody with that, that style. Right. And therein lies, um, kind of 
the genesis of UFC was to match these different martial arts against mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And see who, who who's the big dog here? Yep. Yep. Is that, it the yeah. jujitsu guys or the boxer? Yep. That, Which that, is the beauty of it all. Absolutely. It really is. And I think that segues us into the uh what the beginnings of the UFC. Beautiful segue. Beautiful segue. So yeah, it was like Dr. Mike said, originally um a competition to find the most effective fighting style. Some say it started back in the Han Dynasty in China where there was some uh kung fu and wrestling combined. Uh-huh. Um but also referred to as valet tudo. Um, which was a full contact combat sport based on striking, grappling, and ground fighting. And we're going to get into all these different techniques. But in the first time the word or the phrase mixed martial arts was used was during a review of the UFC 1 telecast. And UFC 1 is, uh, we're going to have to talk a little bit about that. You mentioned it's weird to see a boxer versus the the Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist. And that's how it pretty much started. It was the Gracies, everyone who's mm-hmm. familiar with yeah, MMA yep. knows the Gracies. Those guys for sure. It was Royce Gracie, who was pretty much the was he the founder or the the the, the main proponent of BJ Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and he was he competed in the, this first UFC one event, which was an eight man tournament all taking place in one day, mm-hmm. and it was a mixture of Jiu Jitsu artists, wrestlers boxing taekwondo and no weight classes back no then. weight classes which is which is wild to me and kickboxing and so on and so forth so there's no rounds there's no judges i didn't even know this i had to look like look this up and do my research they would give a one minute rest every five minutes and there was no like it only would end if someone threw in the towel was submitted and knocked out and so you had royce gracie who probably was the smallest wow. dude in this competition yeah. wearing a gi a jiu-jitsu gi and he pretty much just mopped the floor with everyone. But Dr. Yeah. Trojo, the Brazilians are going to get on your ass. Uh, Hoist. Hoist. Okay. That R, yeah, you know. That's bad. That, that was bad. <laughs> no, it's good. No, I, you, you. I appreciate that. That's why we brought you in an asshole expert here. The world needs to know. Hoist Gracie. Can you say yeah. ass on this He's podcast? A, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to keep that in there. So they only had three rules back then. No biting, no eye gouging, and no groin strikes. So go back and take a look at this. Cause they used to get jiggy back in the day. You have like 300 <laughs> plus pounders versus like 170 was that, pounders. This is after bare knuckle? This isn't bare knuckle, right? This is No, this is 1993. Oh, bare okay. knuckle is a recent development. We'll touch on that a little bit. But oh, okay. Hoist Gracie, <laughs> the BJJ expert, he won. He won the tournament. He took down uh, Ken Shamrock, who's a, another famous... Oh, yeah. uh, he, his well, style was more like a wrestling um, shoot uh, shoot fighting, I think is it, was his style. Um, but essentially, Hoist Gracie ran through everyone, submitted everyone, being the probably the smallest guy in that competition. So in the initial phases of mixed martial arts, you would see specialists from one type of style of fighting. Someone who was strictly BJJ, someone who was strictly wrestling, someone strictly boxing, competing against each other. So oftentimes you'd get these like lopsided fights because then you're just finding out which style is more effective against the other. So would this mean that what Gracie's style is the best? Is that what that proved? Or is it more that Gracie was just the the better fighter generally? Like, you know? Yeah. It's hard to say. It's hard to say, but I think it's been shown out over the years through the evolution of, of UFC specifically. Because nowadays you don't just have one person with just Brazilian jiu-jitsu skills, you have people that are skilled in every single facet of mixed martial arts. Absolutely. And we've we've seen, and we'll talk about some of the current champions, a lot of these current champions are at least good 
if not great in almost every category and for the categories maybe they're not so good in whether that's if if there's a like let's take Israel Adesanya who's I think probably now the pound for pound champion he is one of the best on his feet kickboxer boxer he is not very good at wrestling so what is he but what is he elite at takedown defense so okay. he prevents himself from being taken down so that's I think the beauty of the sport now is that everyone is good at everything and it's not, you're not just having some little guy in there that knows BJJ lying on his back, waiting for someone to come into his guard. It's fascinating to see the matchups between different styles. And Adesanya is actually kind of old school because these days you have a lot of the big time MMA fighters. They started off training MMA. Adesanya is kind of old school in the way he was champion kickboxer and then transitioned and brought that specialized skill set to MMA. Um, but a lot of guys you see now started off just straight up MMA. That's the new That's generation. Rory McDonald actually just retired. So uh, shout out Rory McDonald, who was one of those first was guys the first that grew up MMA? straight up MMA training. That's an interesting point because Gracie would be more like that kind of guy because Gracie was obviously great. He wasn't just good at jujitsu, right? He was great. So that's the question is like, do you, is it better to be good at everything? Cause what you could probably do, right? And it's like, if you start, if you're just like an MMA guy from the beginning, you could probably be good at everything. But I don't know if you could be like great at any one particular thing. Well, that's a hot topic and everyone discusses. It's like, what is the optimal base expertise to be a champion. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people say wrestling. Yeah. Not just wrestling, but the mindset of wrestlers. But now you have Adesanya, like Tori was talking about, who's a straight-up striker. Mm -hmm. So Can't get taken down. You could talk all day about this. Yeah. But uh, I think we do see with a lot of the champions, the base is wrestling. Like, well, I mean, I was going to mention Kamaru Usman off the top, but he just lost his belt because his base is wrestling. You had Khabib Nurmagomedov, who was one of the best ever. His base was, was wrestling. And it didn't matter how good your takedown defense was because he was going to get on Absolutely. you and grapple you and take you down and keep you down and, mm -hmm. and bash you until you, you gave in. Yeah. So, but we, we, we could go on and on and out about that. But let me ask you guys a, like a personal question. Which style of fighting do you like the best? Armin, do you still like, like prefer an MMA guy that is good at boxing? You like that sweet science? You know, so in the octagon, the octagon I've learned is very different than boxing. It's just, you know, it's just different. I think... Um, Probably, you know, I've never been inside an octagon, but I imagine it just probably feels different being in there. They purposely lined it with like a cage, made it like a, mm -hmm. a, a chain link fence to make it more like grimacing looking on TV. And there are things that being on ropes can do, I think, make boxing a very different kind of sport almost, you know? Oh, yeah. When you're um, locked in, like literally locked in a cage with another human and you're that human can do anything they want to like knock you out or choke you unconscious, yeah. it's... It's terrifying. You know, obviously very different rules, you know. So I, you know, I've come to now just like totally separate those two sports. When you think about them the same way, you know, it's hard to make sense of everything. But boxing, generally, I love just as I just love that as a very different sport and inside of MMA and inside the octagon. Um, I honestly, I think I prefer just the action that's happening standing up generally. But yeah, I've come three to really different broad styles. There's the stand up, there's yes, clinch, indeed. you're in close, and then there's right. ground. Right. So I think I'm I'm like more of like the boxing 
you know, scenario where it's like toe to toe. What do you got? Anything's possible, yeah, right? It's a little more dy- dynamic. I more like. dynamic. To the, well, I, I'm sure a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner would, would say that the ground fighting could be just as dynamic, but well, the, you the know, untrained we don't eye, see that, right? Yeah. Well, at least I don't as like yeah. the casual, you know, right? But here's the thing. I will say that I, I, I prefer the fact that the fact that you can now throw in like kicks and knees and roundabout or whatever or throw in some kind of situation where you could get someone down right by tackling them or you know what have you man i you know i i think that uh that's what makes ufc interesting is again you have to really be versatile you have to be flexible you have to be able to like kind of see different things coming that to me was the story of what happened in this championship fight you know Usman that we just we were just referring we don't to want, man. we're not going to jump we're not going to no, we're not going to give yeah. it away I'm just going to say man it I was shocked by the way and it's very few times in sports maybe every couple of years right maybe once a year you yeah. know you get a high level competition where you're just like shocked and I've been watching you know MMA well, for a the, long time that's the beauty about MMA too is and we'll touch on this but in that specific fight this person was getting beat pretty much three out of the first the last three rounds in dominant fashion yeah and if you were to see that in like an nba game or an nfl game they're already getting blown out there's no way we're even boxing back in the last second we're even boxing even boxing to a certain right? extent it's yeah. like because again this is what's crazy about ufc is like they can come at you from anywhere and boxing you know there's like just a certain types of types of things you know is going to come at you yeah you just got to watch you're not gonna, watch you're not out for that haymaker yeah you know, yeah. when you, you know, there's like four different limbs versus two. It's a whole different type of calculus, right? Absolutely. Do you like to stand up? What about you? Yeah. It's hard to say, you know, the, whatever, you know, I like watching technicians and it's good for the audience to know, you know, watching a jujitsu match, watching versus watching two people, you know, engaging in that in the cage is totally different. Jujitsu for MMA being that while you're on the floor, you can throw and absorb strikes and elbows, this, that. So it's a completely different art. Well, not completely, but it's very different. Because mm-hmm. I won't watch jujitsu matches. I mean, I love the art, but I'm not watching jujitsu matches. It's too boring for me. Right. A lot of them are just stalemates, the run right. the clock, what have right. you. Yeah. But watching jujitsu in the cage, now that be, I love. Yeah, it could be a great, great equalizer because you could have someone who's on the ground and the other guy's on top of him but the guy on the ground is good at jujitsu with his back on the ground can be mounted but the guy on the ground could be in more dangerous position because he's good at jujitsu and he could triangle choke this guy he can get an arm bar he can throw elbows from the bottom and one way to illustrate that is that in the ufc if you're on your back and you have somebody in your guard the guy on top is in the favorable position as far as getting points in a jujitsu match the guy on the bottom is in the favorable position. Completely opposite. And all of those dynamics are true. But the thing that was always so cool and interesting about boxing, right, was that no matter what's happening, rounds one through 11, right, it's the guy who's still standing at the end. That's all that really matters, right? So one punch could just end everything. No matter what was happening in rounds one through 11, you lost every round, you could still win. But in, in UFC, man, it's like one punch, one kick, one elbow, you Absolutely. know, anything. 
and it, you, it really you, you let a BJJ artist take your back and you all choke you out within 30 yeah. seconds. So, yeah, so there's, there, it's, it's fascinating. This is what these fighters and people are, who are coaches have to be aware of. They have, you have to be extremely mindful and aware of not only your fighter's style, but their, their opponent's style. So a lot goes into it. But before we get into that stuff, um, we gave a pretty good uh, background of MMA. Yeah. So there's several MMA leagues, the most famous being the UFC, which is a $10 billion company. Um, that's, if that's a lot. Most likely, if, you've, if you know what MMA is, you've watched a UFC fight. Um, there's also Bellator, which is probably like the second leading one, at least within the States. Um, there's One Fighting, which is one FC. A, yeah, Asian. Shout out to Demetrius Johnson, who just oh, got yeah. his belt back. Oh, yeah, with a great nasty. Uh, knee. Yeah. That was beautiful. That was good. And they, they we'll talk a little bit about them because they, they, they're a little bit uh, revolutionary when it comes to different things like weight, Absolutely. weight management, weight classes. Um, and then there's Eagle FC, which has just been created by uh, Khabib and Nurmagomedov, who was one of the best UFC champions. Um, I think, yeah, so that's that's up and coming as well. So there's more and more of these different leagues, MMA leagues. These are strictly MMA. We're not even talking about like bare knuckle fighting championship, mm -hmm. which is which is pretty new. And it's, I think it's gaining some notoriety as well. Um, but sp we're going to focus specifically on the USC a little bit. And let's talk a little bit about kind of the salary or the, the earnings of these fighters because we're talking about professional athletes in the past, like NBA athletes, NFL athletes. This is a big business. Certainly UFC is, but the athletes in those big, those more well-established sports leagues, they're actual employees. They get a 50%, 40-50% revenue split. UFC fighters, they're contracted workers. So they don't get they only get 20% of it of the revenue. And no health insurance, no retirement plan, independent contractors. It's yeah, so Dana White, the president of UFC, gets a lot of flack for this. He has came out and said really times that he's against their pay raises. They eat what they kill. They get a percentage of the pay-per-view buys, and the money is spread out amongst all the fighters. So he, he kind of digs his foot in the sand and says, we're not going to make changes. That's interesting. 20%, huh? What, why is it fixed at 20? I mean, just out of curiosity. You'd have to ask them. Yeah, I'd have to get Dana White. He probably wouldn't talk hmm. too much about that. But um, it's no, it's 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 interesting because I mean, I guess a lot does go into you know the the marketing and the promotions, and that's a big part of it. It's and, a different model too, because they well, a lot of their their big things are pay per views, so they get a lot of revenue from that. They they've signed contracts with Fox in the past, now with ABC, ESPN. Um, so there's the, TV. The fighter money. doesn't have to be involved, I, I suppose, any of that. Like their only investment is just to train and to fight. Yeah, so that's right. It, they have it's essentially they'll pay you as much as you fight. At the end of the day, there's bonuses built in and there's incentives built in to be an active fighter, be an exciting fighter, be an entertaining fighter. We have some data from 2021 that the average UFC fighter makes about 160 thousand dollars a year. Now, I think, I don't know about you, but I think this is greatly skewed because yeah. you have Conor McGregor's that are making 10, 20 million a year. And that's the, the, the fighters that are fighting on the prelims. I would be shocked prelims. if the 550 some odd UFC fighters under contract, the average was 160K. Yeah, you take out the outliers, I think it's going to be a lot lower. Yeah, probably. And that's what probably gross pre tax, pre paying out your manager. Oh. 
training camp cost, yeah. blah, blah, so blah. You said there's 550? There's somewhere around 550, 600. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, UFC we, fighters. It said 256 of the fighters, 42% earned six figures in 2021. That was almost spot on. So let's, let's think of a comparable sport in size. Would, would the NBA be considered like a comparable sport in terms of the number of players? Ooh, I'd have to do the math, but how many teams? There's about 30 teams in the NBA, about 10 people on a roster. Mm-hmm. 15. Well, you know, you get 15. Yeah, probably. You can ballpark, yeah. Three, 500. So yeah. what would the average NBA player? That's it, Everyone's making six figures, right? That's on a more yeah. than a 14-day contract. They're also playing 82 games. 82 yeah. games? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just trying. I'm just looking because you said you only got to fight what three, four times a year. That's a lot. That, that's per the contract, end. they have to offer you a minimum of three fights a year, averaged out over your contract. But you can fight more if you want. So, so I'm just curious to know like what that 160 thousand amounts to in terms of number of fights per year. That's a good question. But I have more stats here that 116 fighters. That's 19 percent made less than the average U.S. income, which is twenty five thousand dollars. Wow, that's, yeah, well, that's glaring. So you have <laughs> yeah. What, what were we making as interns, working 100 hours a week, yeah. putting our time in to get our shot? Somewhere in huh? there. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Yeah. These guys are risking hourly their own. rate. We're probably you know yeah. you gotta you know I could take Dana White side and the UFC side on this. It's an opportunity. They're signing a contract. No one's forcing them to. That's right. And again, you put your time in in the beginning. Yep. And it's a dream. No, it is a dream and you're, you're getting paid to, to fight people, which for a lot of these individuals, this might be the most significant, the biggest opportunity they have to do something with their lives, with the skills they have at that point in their life. Um, and absolutely. And it also, you know, there's anecdotal evidence. Um, there are fighters that will elect to fight for less at the UFC just for that brand, just for to say they're a UFC fighter rather than going to like an Eagle FC, a one FC, a Bellator and getting a higher pay yeah, per fight. Like when you see an NBA player rather be on the bench in the NBA versus starting and making more money maybe in Europe. No so question. they want to compete at the highest level. So the, one of the big incentives they do, they do fight bonuses. So they're going to they give out hefty money for individuals winning fights. So per fight, you get paid per fight as well. So the range is $10,000 per fight for of the uh, novice fighters and up to three million per fight if you're talking like conor mcgregor right without the pay-per-view points without the pay-per-view points yeah conor made pay-per-view which conor made 10 million without which mostly it's just reserved for the champions although you have some non-champions they get pay-per-view points so here's what i'm trying to understand because you know you always hear these like huge numbers like conor mcgregor whoever made like 100 million dollars something like that is that just like what the total revenue was and they're actually going to get 20% of that or do they have side deals and side contracts side deals they got all sorts so of side sponsorships deals. that's another thing so, so that's the okay yeah. and just that's to a give, big part yeah of it just too. give the audience a sense of what you're talking about points just mean. their salary yeah for UFC not all of the endorsements yeah, yeah. And things like that and pay-per-view points and I mean don't quote me exactly on this but they'll tell you for every pay-per-view you sell over 200,000 buys you'll get five bucks per sale so if Conor McGregor is doing two million buys again, five, you know, do the math. Yeah, getting That's extra ten mil, fifty. Who knows? So if yeah, you get to difference. the top of that totem pole, you're getting and that motivates and incentivizes off. them to promote themselves. Exactly. You know, the UFC does an amazing job 
branding, promoting fighters. But as you can see, your Chael Sonnen's, your Connors, who are the ones that really break through your Adesanya's are the ones that are adept at promoting themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Self-promotion's huge. It looks totally different now because per game, I imagine an NBA player, average NBA player makes less than 20%, right, of the revenue that that team, that franchise earns per game, right? They're probably earning more, like even like the best players are probably only earn, earning like what, 5%, right? You know what I mean? I mean, if you think about it, 20% is not bad. It's not bad if you think about the bigger picture. But it's going to the big dogs. That's going to the big dogs. It's going to the big dogs. So you do get bonuses um, for your performance. So fight of the night, you get each fighter gets 50K, knockout of the night, 50K, submission of the night, 50K. So you sense a theme here. They they want excitement. Wow. They want entertaining fights. So they're going to, they're going to, they're going to uh, incentivize that. And then you get fined if you miss weight. You lose 20 to 30% of your purse, if not more. Um, and it does go to your opponent. Yes, which I like. I love that rule. Yeah. Sponsors, their sponsorship deals already built in. So Venom is the new sponsor. So they pay fighters 4000 on the low end to $42,000 per fight. And you gain, the more fights you have, that, that dollar amount goes up. The better you are if you're a belt holder, that dollar amount goes up. So that's, that's side change there as well. And then... Mike, you mentioned it. Fighters like Conor McGregor is he had it, he had made enough money to have his own whiskey brand, he has his own uh, promotion or entertainment. When he did the Floyd Mayweather fight, he has his own sports cream spray title, he's got his own suits, Conor he's got McGregor his own fast. exercise yeah. online, yeah. whatever. So, UFC gave him that platform, absolutely. And through that, he's now one of the wealthiest athletes we have going in the game right now. And no wonder he doesn't really want need to or want to fight. And, and well, without a win in how many yeah. years? Five years? Exactly. How long has his career spanned at this point? He had a pretty meteoric rise very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and they, UFC kind of spotted him as someone, this guy's great on the mic. He's genuine and authentic and he can like really sell. He had, he looks the part. He's got the tattoo. Well, they were, the sh they were shutting the lights off in his walkout, giving him the championship treatment before he was anywhere near a champion. They, they shut the lights off in those arenas when Connor was walking out, before he was a champ. He had a mini-series on treatment. Fox. Yeah. yeah. So they were giving him the pedestal, and I don't know if it's fair to say they handpicked some of his opponents on the way there, because he did knock out the 10-year champion, Jose Aldo, in 13 seconds. So he did definitely did the work. And one of his early fights was Max Holloway. Yep. Mind you, his, his resume, his early resume... I mean, if you want to compare it to Sean O'Malley, which we'll probably talk about later. Yeah. But if you look back, it has aged well. Yeah, Dustin Poirier. Yeah, that Dennis Seaver fight, maybe not, but yeah. whatever. He was a yeah, fellow. Yeah. You got to have one can in there. Yeah. Sorry, Dennis. That's, that's an interesting take. <laughs> He's not watching, though. <laughs> his, it's an interesting take. His, his resume aging well. He's, it is. That's well, a, that's his early re take. resume. But yeah, so that's um that's another thing that like we'll talk about how like gratitude's a mental fitness principle we talk about a lot like. In order to be a mixed martial arts fighter, you have to be extremely grateful to be able to, to do the sport you love. We'll talk about fighters who didn't necessarily love the sport that much or ended up hating it and what came with it. But like, in order to, to be in a sport where you may take home less than $25,000 a year and you're in hand-to-hand -hand combat with someone three times a year and you're training for that and dieting, and that's uh, that takes kind of, you have to really enjoy it and you have to take... Uh, um, I mean, I don't think you're, if you're not passionate, it's not happening. Yeah. 
we definitely have to be have a high appreciation for process, you know, for the process because it's all about preparation, right? I mean, the main event is just it's not like in, in basketball, right? We have a, the next night or the next night, right? Or in football, you have the next Sunday. It's just tonight. It's all about tonight. That's it. That's all you have. That's a very interesting point. Process. I mean, when you consider the job. If you fight three times a year, let's say average fight is 10 minutes, 30 minutes of actual fight time per year, and these guys are training how much, it's, it is all process. Right? Is. That's totally true. Yeah. 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 You might fight one or two times a year, and that's maybe what, five to... 10 minutes of ring time and yeah. a year? And then, yeah, you're, you're, you're preparing for <laughs> it the whole entire year. So a lot goes into it, and then you have these pressure cooker moments when you're in that you step in that octagon. They lock the doors, and spotlights are on, and it's just you and someone else. I mean, talk about what uh, performance anxiety. I mean, you train three months for a ten week camp, tens and hundreds of hours, and boom. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's let's go ahead and jump jump into some of that because there's a lot of risk factors which some of which we've already touched on that come that are built into the sport that put you at risk for having things like performance anxiety, depression, substance use, what have you burnout is huge. I mean, we've all probably experienced that being in the medical field. Um, not to compare this to, to the UFC, but you have this injury risk, obviously not only physical injury risk, but uh, risk to injure your ego or be humiliated. You're, in an octagon, it's not like you lose a basketball game, but no, you got choked out or you got knocked out or you got absolutely like grounded pounded for five straight minutes. And you're a tough guy for a living. That's the last yeah, thing you want to happen. Exactly. So you have to deal with that. The risk of kind of concussions, obviously that's huge. You have the weight cutting, like we'll talk specifically about weight cutting, but the weight cutting they do specifically in the UFC and other organizations is crazy. There's still that stigma, I would imagine, in sports. Obviously, we've talked about that in nauseam, but even more so in the, in MMA culture. This kind of, if you're talking macho, masculine arena, you're, I mean, UFC. A lot of these guys, I imagine, there's a huge stigma. Um, I actually want to play a quick clip of one of the UFC fighters talking about that stigma. Um, we talked about like over, you could overtrain, and that could lead you to to being more at risk of depression. You're isolated oftentimes from family these intense six ten week training camps um you're flying all over the globe sometimes you're going to yaz island to to fight in your ufc camp and you're having to stay there because of the pandemic and isolate yeah. or you're dan hooker and you leave to go fight and you can't get back in your home country of new zealand for what two and, and good luck dan i'm really pulling for dan on this next one. Oh yeah yeah, yeah. i mean he took some he took some risks we won't get into that now but good luck dan yeah yeah absolutely he needs a, he needs a w and then they're underpaid, underappreciated, and then the, you you have this one to, to three times to perf actually perform in the year. That just is a pressure cooker of of putting people at risk for for burnout, depression, anxiety, you name it. Yeah, and you know, it, it to me it's so interesting because and this is why why I love boxing as well. Like you really have to almost train like a a marathoner like a, a long distance runner because i mean sure you know you you could knock someone out you could submit someone or what have you in an early stage round i mean you hope you hope for that that's always you know the outcome you would want but you could have to actually go five rounds and not just five rounds 
but five rounds in which you know some bigger person is just like on top of you right and so that's a whole different thing you know having to like now use those same arms and legs when like somebody's been pounding on them all day, you know under the for, bright for lights too several minutes yeah and they've been on top of you just laying on top of you. these are things that i don't really think about because it's not just laying on top of your of, of you just from a trauma standpoint it's just you know you can't breathe as well right when people are on top of you not only that you got these old guys covering your mouth when they're on top of you too right now it's been a long time for me so i I have to go back to being a child when some like bigger person is just like piled on top of me to the point where i couldn't breathe but that's a very traumatizing scenario Mm -hmm. you know just mentally right to to have to deal with let's go ahead and talk about this most recent championship fight between kamar uzman leon edwards because first round was close but rounds two, three, and four, it was dominated by the champion, the pound-for-pound pound number one fighter, Kamaru Usman, whose number one skill is wrestling. He's also pretty damn good at stand-up and a good grappler. So for those three rounds, he was absolutely dominating Leon. He was getting on top of him. He was holding him. He and, was doing what Kamaru does. Exactly, and doing what Armin was saying about just absolutely dominating this other guy for, for three straight rounds. So as someone who is as, as skilled as Leon Edwards is, and you go into that corner... How do you have like, what do you say to yourself or what does your coach say to you? Or how do you have that courage to get, step back out there in the fifth round after you've been absolutely kind of beat up for three straight rounds? So you're beaten up physically, so your body's hurting, you're gassed out because a bigger man, I mean, man's pretty big, but a big man is on top of you. He's punching you, he's taking out your breath. Yeah. So you're physically, you're drained, but also emotionally, like you've, you've done what you thought you could do to win the fight to this point. Nothing's been working. So emotionally, how do you feel about going back out there and trying the same thing? And let me tell you, I mean, this could easily be connected to what we do on a daily basis, right? Talking to people that feel defeated, like hopeless. They don't know what to do. How do you motivate these people? How do you instill hope? I mean, it's hard, man. Well, you have, honestly, you have to embrace this kind of, long distance marathon type of approach where it's like putting one foot in front of the other, you know, you're not really necessarily, you know, looking for the knock, you're not looking for the knockout punch, right? You're, you're looking for just staying in the race. But how right? about going into staying the fifth committed. round down three, you're still to one, you're, but right. But it's the same race as it was in the first round, right? It's just putting one foot in front of the other. You can't, you can't think of it like, you know, it's, it's different. Like the pressure is different now. Well, you, right? the argument could be made that you could because now you need to finish. You can't well, win on points. So the circumstances have changed. It's true. The circumstances have changed. Yeah. You have to survive first. Okay. So you're right about that. You first have to survive. So he had to come into the fifth round, like out of that, you know, out of his corner, like, all right, I'm still here. Right. I can't worry about what happened before. Once he achieved that, so now it goes back to what Tori was saying, gratitude. Gratitude was what won him this fight. Because he first had to have an appreciation for the fact that, like, man, I'm still here, like, right? And I still have a shot, yeah. okay, no matter so, what happened. So I want to play, and I'm going to play the audio. And then he had to embrace so the moment, but which I'm gonna, is what Mike was talking about. So I'm going to play a clip of our cornermen. Um, we can kind of just react to it. 
Rocky S, wasn't yeah. It? So that's it. And that's Leon's, you know, Leon Rocky Edwards. So that's so we we kind of alluded to. You can't see the video like we could, but essentially he comes out in that fifth round. He's exhausted, but he sticks to the game plan. He feints the left hand and lands a left head kick. Clean, technical, intentional, practiced, practiced, drilled. Not an accident. Not luck. Clean, vicious. Not Boom. Good. Of someone who has never been finished. Not even knocked down. Kamara has never even been knocked down. Kamara never suffers damage. Someone who's won 15 straight fights in the UFC, second only to Anderson Silva. He was going to tie that. Like we said, he's the pound for pound number one, dominating that fight. And boom, he gets knocked out with one kick. Yeah. I mean, the only way you can understand that is, you know, through the lens of some sort of complacency some sort of moment of just a, a, a lapse, you know, on the on the champion's part. Like, just th there's no other explanation. That's, well, the beauty of it is, is that Kamara was beating the crap out of Leon, but Leon was still in the fight. So Kamara, I mean, we talk about Leon being exhausted, but Kamara was exhausted too. And that's what happens. You get a little tired. Maybe you do get a little complacent because you won. You're, you're up on the fight huge, and the only way to lose is to get knocked out. And you go, yeah. maybe you go away from what your trump card is in that fight. And that trump card is grappling and being and aggressive, taking him down, being aggressive and controlling him. And he's stayed standing up with Leon, which if anything, you'd probably say Leon, that's the one area Leon has advantages. To Absolutely. And maybe he, he got overconfident and, and yeah, he's like, I could just run around, dance around for the next 40 seconds. How many, how much time was left? About a minute. Yeah, there was only. It was about like a forty some odd, fifty some odd. I mean, and it, it was historic. You get in your yeah. mind, you know, once that minute you, in the last yeah. minute, there's two digits left on the whole in the, the fight. So you could in your mind say, "Oh man, this is over." I think like, you I'm, could like, kind of as like, long as I survive. If this was like an, you NFL, know what I mean? Yeah, if this <laughs> survive this round, I'm good. If this was an NFL game, imagine the score like forty-one to ten, and Leon threw a hell mary that was worth. Which is exactly what you no, were saying. Actually, this did happen. Actually, in other sports, when yeah. Tom Brady and the New England Patriots played the Atlanta Falcons, well, that was that was that was two pretty halves. similar. That was right two halves, in terms of yeah. The, yeah. There's the no scale one of this. play exactly. Yeah. Like that's, that's what's, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's what makes you so amazing. There's no forty point touchdown. The shock factor is like, <gasps> but this is you know. I think for me, in 
like you mentioned, like why you love the UFC and, and like the variety of styles of fighters and never know what's going to happen. It's very dynamic. I something I've been paying attention more and more of is the, the these fighter coach relationships and the cornering that's done. Obviously, we don't get often time to see the lead up in the camp. All all the preparation is already done before they step to the octagon that night. What they're doing in the corner is just kind of ideally a good coach and fighter combo is they've figured out what works in those moments of high stress exhaustion. Yeah. And in that specific situation, um, Leon's coach was kind of emotionally trying to arouse him to get Absolutely. him motivated, to juice him up, to get him excited, to let him know that you have to like bring the fire here. You have to do something. He was prodding him. Um, so it was all about kind of trying to light that fire underneath them. Um, like you said, that Rosa, there's usually another coach that can say more tactical things, but you'll notice like different cornering. Sometimes it's all about reassuring the fighter. You're doing a good job. Keep doing what you're doing. Trying to Absolutely. keep the fighter calm, cool, and collected. Mm -hmm. You'll see that with like a, a Rose Namajunas and her coach slash partner, Pat Barry, in her last championship fight. He's trying to, keep, oh, you're doing great. Keep doing what you're doing. Meanwhile, she was losing the fight and eventually lost the fight. But you have to, you have to know how your fighter's going to respond. So we see a lot the emotional arousing coach, the one that's going to try to keep your fighter more calm the one that's going to give your fighter like technical advice like is your fighter going to be able to receive that technical advice after they've already gone 15 minutes and exhausted so that part for me is very fascinating so yeah. but but like you said like all that is already should already be game plan and worked out and in this situation they already had the tactical skills leon they already knew that that head kick shot was going to be there at some point so the coach chose to just light a fire under his ass and it worked Beautiful. And a lot of people missed it because, you know, one minute left, people were checked out. Some people, I'm sure, left the arena. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was. I was watching it with you, Mike, and you, Armin. And Mike was like, I'm, I'm By not. By the way, I, I bet, Leon. Thank you. <laughs> you were already Thank checked you, out. Thank you, Leon. Right. That was your, <laughs> only only one of the night, huh? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That, that was yeah. It was one of those fights where it's like, first Legally round was pretty good. Bet, first round was good. Yeah. <laughs> Legally bet. First round was good, and then it was kind of vote a yes for Prop 27. Vote yes on Prop 27. <laughs> yes, yes. Stamped and sealed by the two seven like MDs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so and if we relate this back to a mental fitness strategy, it's all about communication, right? It's all about awareness, mindfulness, being aware of your fighter, being aware of how your your fighter receives communication and feedback, and and communicating in that way because we all we all communicate differently. Um, we all have our own strengths with how we communicate, but we also have our own strengths with how we receive feedback. Absolutely. Yeah. Some people are going to show up if, if, if you're trying to rile them up. Some people, it's not going to necessarily work, but some people need that. And in that situation, Coach gave Leon exactly what he needed. Yeah, I, I thought about that because, you know, he, he, was, he was really kind of giving it to him, you know. I mean, he was kind of sunning him in, in a sense uh, in, in his corner. Leon's uh, trainer, he was like, hey, man, like you're basically you're acting like a bitch, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like stop being, you know, stop being Son. a punk. Yeah, you know what I mean. Get your act together. Like you got to get get your head in the game. And some people might actually kind of crumble, like get crushed yeah. by that. Like you know, and, have the opposite effect. But yeah, he knows him. He knows his fighter best. I mean, this is an intimate relationship. These yeah. coaches with these fighters, it's as yeah. intimate as it gets. Well, know? how many hours do they spend together in these these training camps? It's it's unreal. It's it's more intimate than any 
uh, coach um, player relationship in, in sports. I mean, there's obviously certain individual sports um, that definitely there's going to be an intimate relationship, but not compared to like the mainstream ones. And that's also one of the main points of him becoming champion because, you know, he's from the UK. Other prior champions moved to the United States, like Michael Bisping, to train. So he proved that you can stay over there in the UK, have your coaching staff, have your team over there, and still get the title, which is uh, big for the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. he, he has to exemplify gratitude as well because he mentioned in his post-fight interview, like literally cage side, that he grew up in a shack in Jamaica or was born in a shack in Jamaica, made his way to UK with his family, um, went through a tough childhood. So for him to even be in the position where he's making six figures in the UFC, hey. and this is someone who yeah. hasn't been treated the best way by the UFC. No. And it's been pretty public about the fact that, like, this dude, he's how many has he won in a row? He's now has... He's now 11, I think. I yeah. think he was 10 in a row right. before the title It took shot. him 10 wins in a row to get a title shot. I think it took Conor McGregor like three or four. So it just goes to show you that um, he, you know, I mean, it may, he's not the best self-promoter. He's not the flashiest guy. Now he's one of the biggest names in the UFC, though. And, That's all changed, Well, let's think about it, too. Insane. I mean, so he, he's lost to this guy before. Yeah. That right? was his That's last right. loss. Seven years ago. His, his first loss, right, as a fighter in this, in this sport was the ch- So, I mean, to come back from having that psychological wound, you know, from the past and you know, and get this done, it, it, it makes it even more amazing. It's just a really great story. And you mentioned the, you know, the, the financial leap that now he's, he's been able to make and, and how his whole legacy, the entire legacy and direction of his family, you know, is now going to change. There's a lot that came out of that. What's interesting with Leon is that, you know, you never want to make any sort of diagnoses with people you don't actually know, so on and so forth. But you can see him get uncomfortable in some of the pressers, laugh off some questions because he doesn't know how to respond. And what Tori was saying, not the best self-promoter, but that post-fight interview, you know, that promo he cut, you know, pound for pound, headshot dead. Yeah. That's it. One of the all-time best promos ever from Leon Edwards. Yeah, had to be. The guy that laughs off questions at, you know, press conferences because he doesn't know how to respond. The guy that doesn't like the limelight. And boom, in the moment, adrenaline pumping. No filter. Boom. What a promo. One of the best ever. Clean. Oh, yeah. That adrenaline pump, and that kind of shuts off that second-guessing part of the frontal lobe, so he's a little bit more in the moment there. Oh, yeah. Last and that'll leave. I mean, we could have a discussion. We won't. Not today. Yeah. Another time. Social anxiety. Performance anxiety. Yeah. So on and so remember, forth. remember um, that fight some years ago on the women's side, Ronda Rousey, Rousey. and uh, Holly Holm? Mm-hmm. Classic. Mm-hmm. That it, it kind of had a little bit of that type of, of, of flair to it, you know, just that one. I mean, she's the, know, the big favorite last, versus you know. an underdog that, yeah, a huge underdog, but an just, underdog that oh. was skilled, more, yeah, more skilled, I think, in that situation. Just shock, you know, just yeah. shocked the world. That's that, those are the moments that make UFC MMA the, the best sport for me. It's just, it's, it's so exciting. It's so, like you can't predict these things and they happen. And, we were yelling and screaming and jumping around like crazy. And it brings you back to like being a kid and yelling for no reason. Yep, but uh, home. speaking of like, let's talk about a few more fighters um, that have struggled with like performance anxiety. Some of the best, like Nick Diaz has talked about his, his, mm-hmm. his anxiety. Um, 
George St. Pierre, one of the best ever. The GOAT. The one that Kamar Usman was probably batting with between GOAT of, of the uh, welterweight division. They both talked about how there mainly it was a fear of going out there and like being humiliated by their opponent. It's like, I don't like fighting. Both of them talked about that. You wonder how much that, that kind of motivates them to prepare as hard as possible. Yeah. You know? Oh, and I mean, that's a self-serving anxiety most of the time. Yeah. And that's what GSP's talked about that. He yeah. talked about how he has like, OC, he mentioned having OCD and he talks about that's the thing about like my OCD, like my obsessions actually work in my favor to be so good at my craft because I obsess over it. And then, and you I mean, you can talk about the division between, you know, anxiety that promotes functioning and is self-serving versus then a clinical level of anxiety, which we would treat a psychiatrist that is not self-serving, is not promoting better functioning, yep. and, it's and is self-defeating. The interesting way, thing about anxiety is there's like two aspects of anxiety. There's that physical, like somatic anxiety, and there's the cognitive anxiety. So that comes into play, but then there's also what is your perspective or your reaction to the anxiety? For a lot of individuals that have that more physical anxiety, their heart's racing, they're shaky, they're jittery. If they have a positive perspective and see that as, oh, this is helping me get amped up for the fight or amped up for the football game, then that anxiety can be facilitating. Mindsets. But if they have a negative perspective about that physical anxiety and they start, then they start to have the cognitive anxiety, well, why is my heart racing? Why am I sweaty? Why am I nervous? I need to calm down. Then it can be debilitating. Or Absolutely. if they just cognitively believe that they're not as good exactly. or they're not as well prepared it leaves it, it creates <laughs> you know a space I mean? to doubt yourself and yeah. that mindset exactly what you said as far as anxiety what's happening with you cognitively physically that's some of the work that we do in sports psychology indeed mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. In sport, sports psychiatry psychiatry <laughs> well yeah i mean they they really are in partnership you know but with psychiatry sports psychiatry just you know as with regular psychiatry we can you know add another dimension yeah right and um i wanted to mention like nick diaz he suffered with it. he talked about what are some antidotes to some of this pre-performance anxiety he talked yeah. about how he meditates that's like the mindfulness exercise um, maybe not for everyone but meditation can be really helpful and he he's an extremely successful fighter and he, with the high levels of anxiety and he went to meditation to try to better understand yes. the anxiety. Because the anxiety, we're all, we all live with different anxieties and it's, it's just a matter if it gets to the level of becoming disruptive, that's when we label an anxiety. Otherwise, we don't label it. Otherwise, yeah. it just works within our life. Well, and the great thing about meditation is that you don't need a doctor or a therapist you know, to, to, to do it. So many good apps nowadays. I use the Waking Up app. Oh, yeah. too. 10 minutes in each day. Shout out Sam Harris. Oh, yeah. I met Sam Harris. Yeah, he's an OG. Wonderful guy. Legend. Yeah. He's great. Um, but it's a gateway, right? Meditation, you know, is a gateway. To, it's kind of a first step in learning how to control anxiety. Yeah, um, understand, control. Just change the perspective on it to realize that it's actually something that can be better. It doesn't have to be something that... And that's, you know, mindfulness meditation is in my treatment plan with almost all my patients, not my, not just my athletes. You know, we can talk about flow state. We can talk about being mm -hmm. present. I mean, mindfulness meditation, you're, you're getting a better handle on your own attention. What sensory information, what, what am I paying attention to? What am I perceiving? Where's my attention at? 
Am I flowing or am I worried about last round? Yep. If you're worried about last round in the moment, you're going to get knocked out. Yeah. That's right. right. You got to be in the moment. That's exactly so. Right. You, you, you incorporate a mindfulness practice within your training, within your day to day, and you ramp it up when training camp. And then by the time you hit the actual fight, you've already trained yourself to be able to recognize, oh, I'm, I'm having this self-doubt or I'm having, I'm thinking about what happened last round. And it's okay to do that. That comes naturally sometimes. The point is not to react to that. It's to let it go and then refocus in the moment. So if it's not something you can all of a sudden just start doing, you have to practice it and you have to practice it every day and you start to yeah. implement it in your train, like implement it in your sparring sessions and you implement it. Absolutely. Well, it, you know, and there's this other part too. You, you could be kind of reflecting on the mistakes you made last round or you could be kind of thinking about, you know, what I'm going to do after the fight. You know, I mean, something like that, especially if you think oh, you've already definitely won been the fight. That... You know what I mean? If you really believe and you kind of wonder about what happened in the fifth round of this championship fight we were talking about earlier. But yeah, I mean, if you really believe you've kind of got this thing, you know, on lock, you could see how you would maybe you can't forget yeah. your preparation a little bit. There's no margin for error. Versus zero sports, like you can coast at the fourth quarter if you're up yeah. thirty. You can't, you can't coast. You can sit on the bench and have your subs go in. You can't coast in MMA. You have to, you have to maintain that focus even when you're dominating. Because, like we said, like you could go from breaking the record of most wins in UFC or consecutive wins to, to missing out on it. It's tremendous pressure. I mean, that's a different. For it's not a team sport, right? So there's no one else that you can really blame. It's interesting, yeah. though, because it's an individual sport, and we've talked about this with other individual sports, but it's also that team aspect of having your coach and your training camp. Like, you, you have to put together a good camp. We've seen, oh, yeah, for sure. We've seen fighters, yeah, like, have definitely. mediocre yeah. careers or start trending the wrong way, and they switch camps, and all of a sudden they're trending back in the right direction. We talked, I talked a little bit about it before with the Rose Namajunas, who I believe is a more skilled fighter than Carla Esparza. Esparza. Um, but she lost that title fight and she was the champion because she was complacent in part due to the game plan, I think laid out by her coaches who said they, they thought she did enough to win, but the judges thought otherwise. So even though it's an individual sport, there's so many people you still have to rely on and hey, cause you can't watch all the film. And I've, I think I, I read an interview with Israel Adesanya, which is one of the best fighters who, who talked about how he doesn't have enough time to go back and say, watch, every single fight of his future opponent but his coaches will his coaches will watch like say he's fighting jared cannonier his coaches will watch every single fight jared cannonier has had download all the information and then teach him things to do based on they'll come up with the game plan and then teach him and he absorbs that and he'll just watch maybe the most recent fight 20 mm -hmm. percent for basically five minutes it's those those five minutes right or five rounds 20 percent for those five rounds right so 15 minutes of your life, right? That's what your commitment is, right? That's because you, there's no one else in the ring with you, but you're right. Every other aspect of it, which is, you know, the other 99.5% and the hours and the blood, sweat, and the tears, the months of training, that's a collective effort. Well, we, we didn't sure. mention that you, according like the purses, you have to give like close to 50% of that purse to your team. To your coaches, your trainers, your the twenty percent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're not coming home. We, we let's let's talk. Let's jump over to weight, weight management. 
because um, that's a, a huge thing we can't glance over that makes these fighters more susceptible. So weight cuts are huge. So the average UFC fighter will drop 15 to 20 pounds in the last day, five days before weigh-in. So how, how do you drop 20 pounds? So do you have to, like, let's, let's welterweight division 170, right? A lot of these guys walk around around 200 pounds, if not more. And then during training camp, they get a little bit more fit. Maybe they're around 195, 200. And then the week before the fight, they cut water weight, 15 to 20 pounds of water weight, so they can weigh in on the scales at 170, dehydrated as hell, because that's what they do. They dehydrate themselves. And then within 24 hours, oftentimes they'll gain almost all that weight back so they'll be these are fighters that are quote-unquote 170 pound welterweights that walk into the cage sometimes i swear some of them weigh over 200 pounds yeah the kamar uzman usually has his weight cut held in and they say somebody walk into the the ring at like 185 190 easy it's a horrible part of the sport it's incredibly dangerous what sort of long-term damage is being done on the body who knows putting your kidneys through that had several hospitals your brain through that there's been rumors like Uriah Hall had a seizure, single episode. Mm-hmm. Um, Khabib's had, see, Max Holloway had to go to the hospital. I mean, the electrolyte abnormality. I mean, everything. Yeah, because it's it's not it's horrible. normal to drop 20 pounds of water weight in a How much days. weight can you can you actually gain back, though, in 25? 15, 20, sometimes even more. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty significant, for sure. So we've seen people yeah. like almost passing out on the scales. I mean, it's a state of dehydration. Yeah. I don't think any of us have ever been dehydrated in our lives. Is it yeah. worth it? Is it worth it to put yourself through that? And that's another thing that will set you up for success or failure. If you dehydrate yourself too much, you're still going into the fight dehydrated. You're not going to be yeah, fighting exactly. on 10. You're, gonna, you're more at risk for getting knocked out. Absolutely. Dehydration um, is... conditioning is going to go. And we know this is, as physicians because we've seen, we've been in emergency rooms and we've seen dehydration right as like an emergency room visit so it's like a medical emergency it's not a you know what i mean it's not it's not being with. thirsty yeah. yes <laughs> your body your body's shutting down <laughs> your organs are failing because yeah. you don't have enough water yeah. so it's 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 scary and um these guys can't even talk sometimes because they don't have enough saliva in their mouth it's, you know, it's bad it's bad so one FC, which is the Asian organization we talked about before, they had a fighter die from cutting weight. So what they do two weeks later, they just made a they made a rule change. It's different than any other MMA organization, where they'll um, essentially gauge someone's hydration status throughout their their camp or throughout the week before, and they have to be they have to maintain hydration status. Do we know how they're doing that? What sort of I, they, labs or? I think it's some. It's a. Um, they do random hydration checks, but yeah, I'm not. I didn't. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly. It must be a, a blood test or urinalysis. Who knows? Maybe, maybe urinalysis. Maybe urinalysis. That's a good point. There's a lot of ways to do that. Um, so they make sure that their fighters aren't dehydrated. They're not cutting these massive amounts of weights, and the, they their their weight classes are a little different. So the the 155 weight class will actually you can be up to 170 pounds. Because that's usually most 155ers are around 170 or how, I'm assuming they, it's, how often do they do the urine toxicology screenings? I think they, they say they do it ran, random hydration tests. Um, the Utox the, or the, the hydration? No, the, I'm actually talking about the toxicology. Because oh, well, well, they could just do both tests hey, if it's the same Good, seg- good segue, good segue. So that's another thing. A lot of these guys, they'll use sometimes performance-enhancing drugs or supplements, diuretics. 
there you go. different things to, to kind of skirt around the rules or to gain an advantage. Um, doping has been a huge thing. That's why the UFC, I, don't, I forget what year, but they brought in USADA. A con they contracted out, so it's not them doing the test now. It's, not, it's a separate agency that does the tests, and they'll random, they'll come to your house randomly and drug test you. I think there's a video recently. Nate guy Diaz. <laughs> Nate Diaz's house. He's smoking a blunt, and the guy's waiting for him to get to pee more because he hasn't. I don't know what he's recording, and he's saying the USADA guy won't leave me alone. He needs more piss from me while he's burning down a, a blunt. Well, if USADA shows up and you can't provide an adequate enough sample, they will literally not leave you. Yeah. If you take a shower, they're watching if you until miss, you produce the yeah, sample. You have to give them a test. If you miss a test, that counts as a as a epoch. And this was actually a controversy with the Paula Costa fight because he's cutting weight. You saw the shows up. He has no. He can't produce any yeah, urine. And what's he gonna do? Drink some water while he's cutting weight to produce. Mess with his weight cut. Yeah. So that's why he brought the secret. Secret and juice. actually, Dana White said that this will never happen again, which an in interesting topic. We won't digress too far because Dana White having an influence over USADA. That's a conflict of interest. That's a conflict, and that's the whole reason USADA is there in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that seems pretty. That seems like an easy decision. You shouldn't ask a fighter to produce urine while he's literally cutting weight. Yeah. Yeah. But then that gives a window. You never know. But. I don't think I don't know what kind of substance would be performance enhancing to take during your weight cut, um, but yeah, there's been so they've made a lot of changes. But you saw to come in and clean up the sport because you had a time where you could tell physically by some of these specimens, Alistair Overeem, Vitor Belfort, that there's a little extra testosterone maybe going around. Yeah. Brock Lesnar, and also not and this also ties our hands a bit as providers and psychiatrists to these athletes. Because a lot of the medications I use routinely um, are on the uh, band list. Absolutely. Yeah. So treating athletes is well, it presents a different a story. Yeah. But it also presents an opportunity, right? Because we would be the, the ones that would make the call, right? In terms of determining if an athlete can have a substance as part of their treatment plan that's on the list, that's on the band list. Because if it's indicated, and, and we're able to, to provide that justification. Well, even if indicated and prescribed by a physician, there are some medications and things that are not allowed, period. Even if indicated and prescribed see, I, by a physician. That, that's, that's new to us. So we, we, yeah. we should definitely talk about like that. Like TRT, for instance. I mean, people used to skirt around that all the time, like Vitor Belfort, what have you. Saying Chael that hypogonadism. Yeah, they'd go get it. testosterone replacement therapy from an endocrinologist prescribed. It'd be accepted. But I'm sure, Tori, I don't know if you could easily pull oh, that's, it up. That's but some, that's some, even now, that's I mean, far out stuff right there. remember Anderson Silva got caught for having a benzo in his system pre-fight back in the day. Wow. So even if prescribed, and depending on the organization and what level my athlete's at and whatever, yeah, yeah. Um, even with a prescription, like Simone Biles, was it Simone Biles what so got in charge for having a Ritalin or a stimulant? Yeah, so even if prescribed by an MD, there are banned uh, medications. Well, well see, see that's that's a great that's, that's this is really interesting um because is this a, a stigma on the part of this organization you know in terms of athletes that have medical illness because if what i'm saying is saying is if if you have an athlete like simone biles who has adhd diagnosis don't quote me on i think it was her i'm not totally no, sure she, yeah you're yeah, right was it her it yeah, was her. Talked about her. yeah i remember this we talked about she this. was open about it she mm -hmm. talked about it Let's say five years old, she was diagnosed with ADHD, like the traditional way, and 
10 years taking the same medicine and you know she's in the olympics now she is is apparently charged right with with having been positive for a substance that she's using for a medical condition so does that mean that she's not supposed to use that that medicine yeah so does that mean that they're they're advocating for her to not be treated or is it i mean what what, so are, what, what are the alternatives ufc still has therapeutic use exemptions tues which you uh, a prescribing physician can fill out a tue to get uh, a specific medication if they deem right. it important for a medical or a mental illness that they can they can take it what's thing they were skirting around that rule and every ufc fighter was getting a diagnosis of hypogonadism mm-hmm. was getting testosterone replacement so we're trying to look it up but i, I i'm pretty sure that they may have to put the axe on that um, and then with, as far as stimulants goes, I, I do believe that you can still get a TUE and, and use those. Yeah, I would be curious what the rules are with that because I'm not sure. Yeah, because yeah. USADA is is a regulating agency for other sports, right? So, um, and they're extensions of WADA, and we know through that that you can use um, stimulants if you have a diagnosis of ADHD. Yeah, and I suppose, is that a USADA question or is that an athletic commission question? That's a good question. Yeah. That's the thing about UFC is that they – operate in different states and each state has their own athletic commission yeah. who has their own set of rules which some states may not allow a fighter to fight which he may be able to fight in another state and then you have USADA which is another third party so there's a lot uh, more complicated things when it comes to that and this and I mean this could lead to a really fun conversation as far as like you know psychopharmacologically how to optimize an athlete before it goes into the ring you know yeah it says here that the yeah. UFC or USADA will attempt to coordinate TUE applications with applicable athletic commissions. Good. There should be (laughs) some sort of stringent. But they do not control the athletic commission's decision to recognize a UFC TUE Hmm. or grant their own TUEs. What does that mean? UFC athletes should not use any substance or method prohibited by an athletic commission unless they are certain that an athletic commission TUE is in place. Okay. So it sounds like they have to get multiple TUEs. Mm -hmm. If you want to be sure that you can fight... You need to get a TUE from the UFC. You need to get a TUE from the USADA, and you need to get a TUE from the athletic. Now, getting it, okay. So this is a great. When you say get a, a TUE from them, does that mean you have to go to their doctors? I'm, uh, that's a good question. Do they have like their own doctors on staff, mm-hmm. right? That have to evaluate you, or can you bring in your own private doctor? Yeah, yeah. That makes a big difference. I, 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 I'm thinking that you can. It, uh, it's probably. Depends, but I imagine you can have your own doctor fill out of maybe each of them have their own. Imagine form. how discriminating that could be, though. You know, if they have their own doctors that are the only ones making the call, and and they happen to to deny certain, like a Simone Biles, say, you don't have ADHD. We don't. We even if your private psychiatrist diagnosed you, we just don't believe. We we don't agree with that. That gets real murky. Yeah. That gets real. Yeah, that's pretty. Murky. That makes me uncomfortable. You know. Yeah. Yeah, there's but not, these are these they are ha, the they have it all laid out ufc.usada.org. Um, they have all the TUE stuff laid out here. You know, we were reading up on this stuff back in 2017, and I don't know how much has changed, but a lot of this is what kind of motivated us to 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 get into this. You know, establish sports psychiatry because it shouldn't be murky. You know, yeah. it should be very clear. I mean, you know, athletes are people like everyone else, and and they they are entitled to all the same rights. Uh, all the same you know, level of care. It's really not about, uh, at this point, a performance enhancement, right? It's just about giving someone the same access that anyone else would have, okay? We're talking about 
a physical ailment, right? Someone gets injured, they're going to have no barriers whatsoever with their physical injury to getting the highest level of access to get a full up. Because we, we want them to get back onto the field, we want them to get back into the octagon as Absolutely. quickly as possible, as healthy as possible. So why do we look differently at mental health stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the T, yeah, the TUs, is, it's for both mental and, and uh, physical health. It looks like you can get a TUE from your, your, whoever your physician is, but then they also have a, um, they have a panel of medical professionals um, established by the that consider the application. There you go. So well, just, some oversight is fine. Yeah. So it's like yeah. doing a prior auth and getting it reviewed by prior your, your auth, insurance yeah. companies. And you do need some oversight rather than just that person's yeah. private yeah. MD because that can... Yeah. Phys- physicians are just like anyone else. There's going to be some uh, ones that... Um, are a little thirsty yeah um, yeah and then of course you know it becomes a democratization thing too because the, the highest paid athletes can get you know you know some sort of private doctor and pay them to pretty much prescribe whatever they want of you course know? yeah of we, course we see that with some con- concierge psychiatrist for sure you don't do any www.mymd.com <laughs> they'll come visit i mean everyone gets concierge do you make level house care. visits I don't. Okay. I don't. That's, uh, I think that would I be used a conflict. To. Back for the Jewish well, Family okay. Services. Yeah. Back in the day. Nice. I, I still think there's a market for that. I think that could be an interesting way to go, but it would have to be a high-paying client, you know, which we do have access to those types of clients in L.A. for sure. There's plenty of that out here. But let's a little bit about substances that athletes have commonly abused and been caught for. We talked yeah. about testosterone. So, so many things inter- increasing testosterone, like antibiotic steroids, testosterone replacement. Um, we've had uh, Vitor Belfort, Alistair Overeem, Brock Lesnar, Chris Cyborg, Dan Henderson, Chael Sonnen. Chael P. Is that the most guy. prevalent, would you say, of all so the violations? That, yeah, I th- I'd say that is. And then you have your EPO, your erythropoietin users. This, and this is the naturally produced... Um, Hormone. Yeah. Hormone for the more yes. so, so that's for stim- the more sophisticated cheaters that stimulates red <laughs> blood cell production. Now, mind you, this Lance is Armstrong. Lance Armstrong made yeah. this famous, and he had it down to his science. So this is Chael Sonnen, your boy, also tested pop for that. Chael's well. pop for everything, <laughs> yeah. and he'll be the first but, to admit it. Yeah, but he he he's great yeah, on the mic. He was the so. one that that got my guy Anderson Silva. Almost. That's right. Yeah, you know well. You know, he he did because he, he he broke his leg. No, that was Wyman. No, he almost. Oh, that's right, Wyman. That's yeah. right. That's where he got caught. He was taking testosterone. Right. He was ragged all in Silva for a good what? Four and a half. Four what? There you go. Your, yeah. There's your Leon yep. uh, Edwards story. Yep. Except, but he was uh, the underdog. Exactly. I remember watching that. I was so pumped. I'm like, oh shit! And then what did he get? Just got caught. Got with triangled. Yep. Yeah, and so she's been caught in a triangle late before. What so was the story? Shelton was a huge underdog. No, Five I mean, round championship fight. He was ragdogging him for. Yeah, no, or, exactly. But how, no, how do they catch him is what I'm trying to figure out. Oh, I think it, eventually or soon after he tested positive for a uh, synthetic testosterone. Some sort of metabolite or something yeah. after he got. So, so was this something that they, he did not believe that they were testing for? Or did they kind of change it up, switch it up on him? Like, how, I'm always curious to know how these athletes are getting cut because obviously they're, they're doing it for a while. It's not like. I know. mean, I could speculate. Um, but I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I guess, you know, over time, they yeah, kind of so figure out mo- new It was a month later, the California State Athletic Commission announced that Sona had tested positive for elevated testosterone levels. And he later admitted that he used synthetic testosterone, which was a banned substance, according to USADA. Um, 
but he didn't admit he was willfully cheating, which is another thing that hmm. has been an issue, tainted supplements. Um, but Sonin claimed that he had permission. He said he was using the steroid on a doctor's orders as part of medical treatment for hypogonadism. Mm-hmm. So he said, is that true? He said, quote, unquote, I don't have the option, quote, unquote, I either take this medicine or die. <laughs> well, you definitely don't die from that. I, but did he have a doctor's note? That's the real question. I'm sure he did. That's the thing that's so Who knows? weird. Like, yeah. Okay. And it, it says here that he did get granted permission to use testosterone via a TUE. Yeah. See, as doctors, we have so to be. So maybe he, at the time, he didn't have one. And, but later he eventually, yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say, cause we have to recognize that in a sense, you know, it almost makes him not innocent, but it definitely takes some culpability away from him. Cause I mean, if somebody's in, if we're enabling that type of thing, but to, right? to, if you're treating to like you're trying to replace someone's low levels of testosterone, you're not going to, you don't want to elevate them to above the normal range. Right. And even with the TUE, you do have to stay within range. Yeah. 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 So they have a range. They have a range. So it's for good sure. that they have this stuff in place. Like so th- this, this really is down to a science. This sport came out in 1993, yeah. so it's it's very new relative yeah. to, to things. Absolutely. It's, it's, things are still changing, and I think uh, it's good that they're testing for these things. But yeah, EPO, we had um, TJ Dillashaw, who was the champion at 120, 135. 135. Who's um, currently an underdog against Aljo. Yeah, he got stripped of the belt in two, two year years. Two years. Two years. He just came back, had his first fight back, what, about a year or so ago? Yeah. He, he Corey beat Corey Sandhagen in a decision, then got knee surgery, has been out for probably 9, 12 months. Now he's coming back for his title against Aljo. Aljo. That's going to be an Aljo issue, right? See, he looked good without the EPO, so we'll see. Yeah. Aljamain's skilled, but TJ's also Man, If skilled. there was ever a sport, though, where you, you kind of give a guy a pass... For doing substances, it would be something like this, you know. It's unfortunate, you know. I mean, I know what they put yeah. their bodies through, it's hard. It's, the pain, but you could you could say the exact opposite though, because that unfair advantage could cause Someone physical else. harm exactly. to you're that right. opponent. No, you're absolutely yeah. right, and, and, it, 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 and it makes such a huge difference, right, in terms of the outcome, right? I mean, because have you seen Alistair Overeem or Brock Lesnar when they competed in oh, the heavyweight yeah. division? Yeah, right. Like, yo. That is ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a huge. Once you saw it, got signed on. You could yeah. see the changes. Ubering, ubering. <laughs> I but I mean, I think I still think maybe Brock got a got a pass. I would agree. Um, no substances are going to have the biggest difference in a sport like this, right? Yeah. One shot, right? One night. You know. Yeah. Do do whatever you can to win. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think they're allowed to have like a Tylenol or a caffeine. I mean, these guys on fight day, I'd have to look it up. Um, but they're very strict. Yeah. It's all about rehydrating, I feel like, in the last 24 hours. Indeed. It's got to be, right? But it it's, has to be. It's crazy. There's footage, and we talked already at Leon. Like, they're drilling a lot in the mornings of, like, they're drilling the moves they want to hit. And, like, there's video of Leon drilling that same like that same combination. And he didn't pull that win. kick out all fight. I don't no. know. I might, I might be mistaken. I might have missed it. Yeah. But he had he held that thing back. He saved yeah. his best then, for last. He, well, he was like, also on his back a lot. Yeah. He so. wasn't like Luke Rockhold just throwing that kick nonstop. Luke, <laughs> three three rounds. Talk about someone that was victim of TRT. That TRT Vitor that head oh, kick yeah. knocked out Luke. Changed his career. Changed his career. That same TRT Vitor basically blinded Michael Bisping in one eye. Wow. Yeah. So that, talk about the. 
you know, the negative what, impacts of yeah, TRT, TRT on your opponent. Exactly. And that's yeah. why I give John Jones respect because he got out of, was it an arm bar from him in the middle of TRT oh, yeah. Vitor Andy, then he didn't break his arm or he got him in an arm bar or choked him out. How did he finish that? Fight? We haven't mentioned some sort John of, Jones yeah. off choker. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All show, but I mean, you know, he's a legend. He is. He's, he's probably in the cage. I mean, you could definitely argue that he's the best to ever do it. He's my goat. Yeah. yeah. That's you my goat. That, yeah. He's mine yeah. as well. And it's been interesting what's gone on with his career and off out of the cage. I also, I also met him once. He's an extremely nice guy. Very grateful that I, I uh, acknowledged him, gave him some props. But yeah, he's had a lot of off the field incidents. He comes from, I mean, both his brothers are professional athletes, high level professional athletes um, in the NFL. So definitely an athletic background, just such a talent and, We'll see. He's supposed to come back and be in the heavyweight division. He's fighting Stipe, right? I don't. I don't know if it's signed yet, but that's what they're saying. We talk about goats, you know, from time to time on this show because it's just it's fascinating. It's a great topic, and what goes into it, and we 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 sort of you know have like criteria for what goes into it. statistic ability, statistic uh, prowess. That that's only one part of you got to put the stats go, right. And then there's also, of course, like your just competitive greatness, your killer instinct. You know, that's like a second area, of course. And and then I would say your leadership, you know, your your character, your character strengths. Also the strength On of the competition. And yeah. off, you know, the, the field of play, so to speak. That's, right? that's a Definitely. tough one. The strength of the competition is a tough one because then you, get, you start to, com- you have to compare different eras as well and it's hard it's absolutely hard. yeah it's so, all kind it's of hard. the goat talk i think just well, like the in his case, talk, it's yeah. a bit, what would you yeah. say would you say it's his skill slash statistics would you say it's the, his the dominance he, he showed the dominance he showed um, by taking out like a, ver- a variety of different high level absolutely. former champions on his rise his ability to consistently defend the title and he yeah i mean there's been a couple fights like in his heyday when like the Alex, Alex Gustafson fight, which a lot of people thought he lost. That was a, like he's won in so many different ways is what I'm trying to say. Like, Absolutely. He's battled it out. He's submitted people. He's, he's knocked people out. That's what we expect from a goat. You know, there's a little bit, there's no everything. one area that, yeah. you know, and his style like, has changed. They shine in all, all aspects. The, Absolutely. Yeah. He's good everywhere. The thing I, with him is, that you can tell is that sometimes he does get complacent and you saw it maybe in the, the Tiago, uh, Santos. Yeah. Mejeta is his nickname. Yeah. Santos yeah. fight. Yeah. And in some of his later fights where it's like, he seems to be a little bit like coasting here. Well, the past two fights, you, there's an argument to be made that he lost both of them. Yeah. The Reyes fight as well. The Reyes fight. I had that fight scored for Reyes and also, um, the Maheta fight, yeah, yeah. That, I had that fight scored for um, him as well, against the, John. And these are essentially, I think Reyes at the time we thought was like going to be the next champion. He was great and has since like lost those last couple fights. And Santos is kind of at this point a little bit of a journeyman. So those were much less skilled fighters, and he let both those fights go to a decision and, and could have easily lost those. Yeah, and then I mean, there's a conversation to be had as far as like how his style has changed, how he's much less dynamic. He takes much less risks, and well, same thing with Adesanya. I mean, they don't—they're not going to lose. And that's the thing, right? It, once you're when you're performing against a champion, right, and you expect some judges to give you his 
crown, especially all the time that, you know, he's put in. It's not just about winning. I mean, you know, like you have to, in order to like give it to, you have to really be significantly better, right? You that, take the belt. Yeah, that can bite you in the end. That's what happened to Rose. A close Rose call should never go to a challenge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that, there's a whole argument there too. It's like that whole saying to be the champ, you got to beat the champ. That's real. Unfortunately, it's real because that shouldn't go into play. Any sort of bias you have shouldn't go into that 10 point, uh, the 10 must scoring system. Mm -hmm. But we're all human and we're all biased. No matter how much you try to check that bias. Um, listen, you got to beat John Jones. if You want the crown. Yeah. Well, right. But the other thing you got to think about, too, is like, OK, if we're going to give this guy, right, the ch the, he's going to be our champion now. He has to represent. We don't want a guy that's gonna become the champion and then lose the next fight, right? Yeah, I think about that too. Yeah, and this is a guy that obviously been a champ for years, biggest name in sports. I think probably safe to say it got to his head a little bit. He got a little cocky, confident. There's, I mean, obviously he's done things off the off, out of the cage where he's talked about. I think using cocaine before and different things. I think he hid under the rest of the octagon and has practice facility once when you saw it came by, um, which he admitted to actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So he um, is someone who I think at, at the end of the day, maybe he felt like, oh, I don't want to continue to be in this weight class and fight these young guns. It's, it's not a challenge for me. And he, he was aware enough to like, all right, I'm getting out and I'm going to move up to, to heavyweight. Whether or not he actually comes back and fights, we'll see. But I hope he does. Yeah, I hope he does too because that would be great. It's, I mean, it's an interesting move though, moving up to heavyweight. He's certainly, I mean, he's long enough, but he's not, He's definitely going to have... I mean, he relinquished his title. Who does that? Yeah. I, I just think it didn't get up for him anymore. Like, the, yeah. those challengers weren't enough for him. I mean, to be fair, now now you got Yuri in that weight class. Who's, you're having some good fights. I, I, I feel a, a future UFC MMA episode brewing where we can kind of talk about, you know, being the pound-for-pound pound champion, right? Which is, you know, a, a higher level of success and greatness right that's the thing it's like we talked about kamar uzman former pound for pound champion took his foot off the gas a little bit maybe or took his concentration away and now that that title's been taken john jones event was pound for pound lost focus that's been taken now next now Who's it's first Volk? It, is it Volk? Volk, it's actually Volk? Volkanowski who hasn't lost 145 or um and, and israel adesanya's number two there is he i think was number one at some point but then he also kind of coasted his last fight but he won so a lot of different strategies for these guys because like you said fighters like israel adesanya much more talented they may it's a five-round fight for the champions they may be winning three to one four to zero going to that last round why take additional damage why let this guy get shots off in you why take risks so maybe you do kind of run around a little bit and you're not going to win fans that way but you're going to win the fight you're going to keep that belt and having that belt means bigger paycheck bigger endorsements um you're still the champion so you get to fight again for with the belt next time so um you gotta keep that in your head you can't get too cocky and go for the finish we've seen a lot of times um where fighters will just kind of well go up there and there's and always a new challenge always a new challenge i mean if you can go up in weight class right it's not just about going up a weight class and you know having a new set of challengers it's going up a weight class is a technical difference right it creates a whole new challenge because because if you're having to get bigger you know you have to be stronger to deal with those guys that's where right? 
Israel Adesanya, he's the the one eighty five champ. He decided, all right, I've been kicking the crap out of all these guys. Let me. I think the two oh five champ is beatable. I'm gonna go up and try to beat him. And Izzy's not a big guy. I don't even think he cuts much weight for one eighty five. Yeah. And he he went up against uh, Jan Jan Blahovich, and Jan just essentially just used his size to his advantage. I don't think Izzy even gained weight. I don't think he put on any actual yeah. size to his frame. I think he just didn't cut. Yeah, I think he went into the fight like yeah, under two hundred pounds. And, and so he, it's all about speed. Some may yeah. say hubris. Yeah. Some may not. Yeah. And the the bigger guy who is skilled but not as skilled as Izzy just essentially was able to take him down. And I mean, credit to Izzy for surviving that because like Jan with the Polish power knocks out a lot of guys. Um, but Mind that, you, Jan is cutting to 205. He's yeah. probably walking in there 230. Yeah, so there was an See, easy 30, that's crazy. 30 pound uh, weight advantage there. Yeah, that, that's, that's, um, I mean, yeah. that's, that's a hard lot overcome. to overcome. And let me tell you, technique, skill aside, 20 pounds, 15 pounds, th- I mean, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Huge. And that's, that, that to me is, is really the magic of MMA. It, is, it, it really, from a mental fitness standpoint, you know, we're all about mental fitness here. It's got to be right up there at the top of the list, you know, as far as sports is concerned. Like you have to really have high level, elite mental fitness. I think to even compete, not even, you know what I mean. I'm not even talking about even the champion. I think to be the champion in those sports, there's no question about their mental fitness capacity. But I think to even compete at all, you have to have a high level of mental fitness. You have to practice and prepare and meditate, like we talked about earlier, to be a better fighter. Yeah. I think it's it's all about like any sport when you get to these elite levels, you're going to see the cream of the crop rise with their skill set, but don't forget that the, the mental skill set is is often just important, just as important if not more important for these guys. Take for example like Glover Teixeira, this dude's mm-hmm. in his forties, he's been he fought Jones for the belt ten over ten years ago and got beat, and the dude just won the belt for the first time ever like last year i forget how old he is he's definitely he's in i his think 40s. he's 42 yeah at a four imagine being in your 40s and winning your first ufc belt at uh was it two or 180 205er he took it from yeah, yon yeah you're right yeah 205er took it from yon who beat his izzy um he just lost the belt to yuri in a hell of a fight but glover has a rematch and that was a hell of, glover could have easily won that fight talk about another fight where yuri was losing going into that fifth round um, and then pulled it off. Yeah. But Glover has such dedication to the sport. He's got tremendous skills, tremendous chin. We didn't even talk about that. The, the ability to take a punch, take a beating, oh, yeah. and not get knocked out. No, that's out. what I'm saying. This topic, we can on go that. on and on. I mean, there's so much here. There yeah. should be another one. We, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to talk about. But he, a lot. he is definitely aware of what his skill is because he knows that he's usually better at grappling and getting someone on the ground. So he's going to get close, try to bear hug you, hit you with some shots inside and take you down. So he gets to that quickly. He's definitely someone who's to be in the game and still fighting when you're in your 40s, when you've been doing it since you were a kid. He's got to be grateful. He's got to be appreciative of being able to play the sport. Um, And he's someone who trained, uh, grew up in Brazil, but then moved his training camp to the States and is just someone who's gotten like a fine wine, gotten better with age and like kept at it. Because I thought when Gustafson took him out a few years ago, he was done. But he kept out and became champ. And 
hey, he, he has a really good chance of beating Yuri, who is an insane fighter yeah. um, in their rematch coming up. And mental fitness is the key to being able to get better with age. You know, Absolutely. To, to stay at that level of performance, to you know, maintain, sustain performance, it's, it's all about mental yep. fitness. Yep. You have to be able to kind of turn that switch because you're going to, to lose your, your physical capacity over time. You know, that's just father time, you know, mm -hmm. mother nature. But the mental part is something that you can control. You know, we always go, you talk about control. You know? I mean, longevity in a sports career is also a good topic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We're, yeah. we're seeing, like, it's, we have to really, like, watching Tom Brady play, even Aaron Rodgers, like, these guys that are continuing to play, like, MVP level quarterback in the NFL. Get good sleep, people. The 40s, yeah. Starts with good sleep every good night. Good sleep, good <laughs> diet, good social support. Be, like, Resilience is, is what we always, you know, it's our buzzword. It's our, the magic word when it comes to mental fitness. And you know, the two big pillars are, you know, control and, and you know, having control, which, you know, we always talk about the process for having control, the mindfulness, the gratitude techniques, flexibility. Right? It's control and flexibility, right? And balance. Balance is control and flexibility. And, and that's what we are all about, you know, and mental fitness gives you that balance, Flexibility is what you absolutely need to be great at this sport. We just talked about all these things, you know. You have to be, you know, versatile and flexible in, you know, how you learn the sport, all these different types of fighting styles and how you defend yourself in the sport, right? If you're, you know, going to be going up in weight or down in weight, now there's totally different tactics. Each fight, though, right, could be a totally different experience than the one yeah. before. yeah. Absolutely. You're going to come up with a different game plan. We didn't even talk about the fact that you're kind of almost in this fight against UFC because UFC will try to pit you up against certain people. But if you're an up-and-comer fighter, you kind of have to be smart about who you pick and choose, to, like which fights you accept. Yeah. Like if you're this amazing stand-up fighter that can be anyone in stand-up, like are you really going to want to go against like the one of the best wrestlers in the UFC that's just going to try to take you down and you haven't had enough time to practice your takedown defense? No, but the UFC is going to prep, maybe pressure you to do that. But oftentimes you're going to have to stand up for yourself. I mean, there's so much to talk about. I mean, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson just denied the, rejected the fight with uh, Shavkat um, because he does, he's like, give me someone that's not just a straight up wrestler. Yeah. I mean, that's part of your management team's decision, but certainly matchmaking and being wise about the fights that you accept without being too picky to not piss off the UFC brass that's going to be real, real uh, important yep. to become a successful UFC fighter with longevity. And that's kind of what Leon yeah. Edwards did is he took, he didn't get the title shot after pro arguably deserving it. He got passed up by Colby the second time, Gilbert Burns. So what did he do? He went, he fought, signed to fight uh, Nate Diaz, which isn't like an elite, elite level championship fighter. But he's a crowd favorite, and he brings in pay-per-views. So he fought a main event against Nate Diaz, got more eyes on him. Won in pretty convincing fashion, did get kind of a little rocked in the fifth round. In the fifth. But he won that fight, and that set him up to get the title shot, and now he's the, the champion. Um, I want to ask you guys, we'll, we'll wrap up here, but anything you guys are looking forward to when it comes to MMA and UFC in the rest of the year? We'll start with our guest. You know, Charles Oliveira, Islam Makhachev, probably my number one most anticipated fight. I got money on um, my boy Charlie Olives. Okay. Yeah. Dude, 
We didn't even talk about him. He's the champion at 155. Another dude. That's talk about resilience been in the and game. flexibility. He's been I in mean, the game like he's like a Michael Bisping. Been in the UFC for ten plus years, kind of middling a little bit. Now all of a sudden goes on this crazy win streak as the champion and is finishing people. He might be my favorite. You have active UFC fighter besides Jose Aldo. Talk about his mental yeah. fitness skills because this mm-hmm. is a dude, BJJ expert, great at that. Uh, bigger guy for the division, so he's already coming in bigger. Was um, kind of got flack for like tapping to strikes, like giving in, like essentially Being throwing a in the towel. Yeah, and he's someone who has improved his stand-up game and his like just his physical and emotional resilience to the point now where. In like pretty much all his title fight wins, he's been knocked down several times and gets right back up. Well, first he'll lay there and wait to see if the other person will come follow him, but no one wants to follow this guy to the ground because most of the missions in the UFC history. Exactly. He's a BJJ guy. He he likes to be on his back, but gets right back up when when these stand-up guys don't want to follow him to the ground and ends up like going toe-to-toe with them and knocking them out. So this is, the, yeah, I love that. I love that you say. And he's fighting uh, Khabib's protege who hasn't lost, um, who's going to bring that Dagestanian wrestling. And that's a contrast of styles that I like right there. I can't wait for that fight. And I was telling uh, Tori, I got, you know, I got Charles at a plus 350 underdog. Is that still? When the fight was just rumored, he's plus 140 now. Okay. We'll see where the line goes with that. Yeah. But that's, that's what I'm looking ridiculous. forward to most. As far so, as fights in the UFC. Yeah. I think that people are just assuming Islam is, is the next Khabib. Well, Khabib says Islam is better stand-up. Yeah, fair assumption. We're going to find out. So that's, yeah, that yeah, that's coming at the end of the year. I'm looking forward to um, that. Uh, you stole that from me, but I'm also looking forward to seeing Kamzat. Um, he's fighting Nate Diaz, which will be a fun fight. And it's, it's going to be, I think... A, just a classic fight where Nate Diaz doesn't get finished. He's just going to get beat up for a long time. Although I do think Kamzat will probably get him out of there. Yeah. Um, although would it be fun to see Nate Diaz win and then he gets a always title fun shot Nate, against always Leon fun Edwards. to see Nate Diaz. There, and then he man. beats Leon Edwards and then Conor McGregor gets it. That would be incredible. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I'm I'm looking forward to just seeing the UFC just continue to to ascend. Like I said, uh, it it's been weird. Uh, learning to appreciate a new combat sport, having been a huge fan of boxing for so long, but but boxing is is just been very disappointing for many years now, um, and I'm starting to 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 really develop a strong appreciation for what the UFC is doing. They're producing amazing athletes, and it's it's a really interesting sport. I mean, I've learned so much today. I didn't know, um, and it, it is a sport that has so much upside. You know, as better athletes come into the sport, more money, you know, and stuff like that comes into these events, uh, the sky's the limit. And I will, I will say too, um, man, Anderson Silva was my guy for so long. I'm looking forward in the more immediate term to a, a champion like an Anderson Silva, you know, somebody that's, you know, has the flair, you know, that kind of flamboyant, you know, a goat type of energy, you know, it's all about the goat energy. Uh, then, then I think you're, you want to tune in and watch Israel Adesanya versus Alex Perea. You're right. You're right about that. He's a guy that I, I could see. Yeah, he's he's probably the next. So that's one an interesting sure. one because that's a great yeah, his great challenger pick. is the is someone who beat him twice in kickboxing and then just mm. now come over to MMA. Wow, um, that's gonna be that's gonna be amazing. But you mentioned boxing. I wanted one more thing is boxing took I think got hip to it a little bit because boxing MMA I think the casuals think MMA is brutal. 
boxing actually has a higher risk of concussions mm -hmm. because in boxing, first of all, you're going 10, 12 rounds. MMA is usually, or UFC is usually just three unless it's a title fight, it's five. So a lot more time in there to get punched in the face. Also, boxing, they give you a 10-second count. You can get knocked out, knocked down. So if you can recover in 10 seconds, you can keep fighting. Versus MMA, if you can't defend yourself, the ref's going to stop that real quick. Absolutely. So boxing, I think, is just uh, red implemented. Like You can only get knocked down three times max now. It's like if you if you get knocked out a third time. I don't think that's for all the fights, but I read that somewhere. So they're trying to make that a little bit more safer because you've, you've, there's been several deaths in the sport of boxing um, and not that many in, in in MMA, I don't think any in UFC, so. Yeah, you would never realize that. I mean, it, it, you're right. I mean, it seems more brutal, but yeah, I don't know. That's crazy. Oh, well, there's a lot of proponents, including Joe Rogan, who's for uh, bare knuckle, no no gloves. And that's another thing for boxing, because the bigger the gloves, they use, I think, eight to 10 ounces versus MMA's four ounces. You can punch without worrying about breaking your hand. MMA, four ounce gloves, you can break your hand. But if you go bare knuckle, which in bare knuckle fighting, you have to be cognizant about how many punches you throw because you'll break your you'll break your hand. So it's a little another flare there. Um, well, why do you think Joe Rogan is a, is a he, he says it would be knuckle. safer because you're going to get less punches thrown to the head and because there's a chance of breaking it's an interesting your hand. Take. You're going to get a lot more cuts. It's going to look a lot more gory. And if you watch BKFC, that Michael Venom Page Perry, I, I don't know if I'd be, if I want to do that study. Yeah, no, there, I've I've looked. There's a bunch. There's like mixed data. There's nothing. No good studies out there. And I think both both sports. First of all, boxing's not that organized. Um, but both sports would probably they'll do their own internal studies and come up with their own internal results that are a little biased. But um, it's been yeah. a great conversation. It has been, and I appreciate. Dr. And thank Mike you guys. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a privilege. Well, Pleasure. We might have to do a UFC check in every year. I'd love to. Why not? No, this is great. Like I said, it. it it fits the mental fitness mode quite well. Yeah, we love it. You got, we got to have you help us with our sign-off here. It's been great. It's been great talking to you Thanks, guys. Boys. Loving this. Yeah. Have to do it again soon. So let's end the stigma. And continue the conversation. Hell yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. Do you feel me? Do you feel me? in this world that men can't talk. Listen, if you're a man and you've got weight on your shoulders and you think the only way you can solve this by killing yourself, please speak to someone. Speak to anyone. People would rather, I know I'd rather me make cry on my shoulder and go to his funeral next week. So please, let's get rid of this stigma. And men start talking.